Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, November 22nd. I hope you're getting all ready for family, friends, turkey day. Uh, If you don't have to work, if you're one of those people lucky enough to be able to have it, the holiday off. Um, We're in pretty good shape, I have to say, though, uh, in all honesty, I ordered most of the food. Uh, Yeah, I'm cooking a little bit, you know, a couple of side dishes here or there. But um, I am not up to cooking a turkey. No, no. I I don't even pretend that I have the expertise to do that. Uh, By the way, uh, tomorrow from 4.30 to 5.00, Shelly Young from the Chopping Block is going to be uh, joining us. We've been uh, getting some questions from people about a lot of the questions, interestingly, have to do with food safety, um, you know, either how to safely cook things or how to safely store things. So tomorrow from 4.30 to 5, Shelly Young is going to join me to answer all of our Turkey Day questions. We are uh, going to be talking politics today, as always. Uh, We're going to be talking to at least one of the candidates for mayor. But as I said yesterday, this week, every day this week, well, you know, today and tomorrow, we're going to spend some time on climate change, on recycling, on being a responsible consumer. And what I'd like to focus on, yeah, there's big picture stuff going on that we need to know about but also the day-to-day stuff. Yesterday, as you uh, you may remember, we talked to uh, Christy Mahali, author of Diet for a Changing Climate, <clears throat> which is the book. It's written for a high school audience uh, about things that you can do, uh, like eating insects. Eating insects. Yeah, uh, because there's lots of them and it doesn't hurt the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be talking to Paul Greenberg, who wrote a similar book. It's called The Climate Diet. He also makes some recommendations, some that you might find a little bit uh, easier to take than uh, eating insects or weeds or swamp rats. Okay. Big news uh, that broke uh, just uh, late this morning. You know, There's a committee in Congress uh, that subpoenaed Donald Trump's tax returns, and he has fought tooth and nail to keep that committee from getting his tax returns. And he finally took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled today. They denied his petition. The Supreme Court today said no to Donald Trump, uh, which means that the Treasury Department... <clears throat> should be handing over six years of tax records to the House Ways and Means Committee. The House Ways and Means Committee was uh, trying to do um, annual presidential audits. They said they needed this kind of information to do them effectively. Um, Trump, of course, as always, saying it's political, it's political, it's political. Anybody who wants anything, I don't want to give them. Anybody who wants anything from me that I don't want to give, it's all political. <clears throat> um, but the Supreme Court said no. Mm-mm. Nope, 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 nope. 
now the question becomes, because this is, of course, a Congress that's about to turn to Republican control. So if it doesn't happen right away, the chances of a Kevin McCarthy-controlled House of Representatives, a Republican-controlled House and Ways Ways and Means Committee, uh, continuing this is probably moot. So we will see if there is any kind of delaying tactic that Donald Trump can bring to bear. You know, as brazen as he is, it wouldn't surprise me, even though the Supreme Court has ruled against him, it wouldn't surprise me if he just flat out won't do it. Thinking, eh, you know, I only have to hang on for what? Another month and a half? I don't know. <clears throat> Interesting speculation by Charlie Sykes. You know, I I read this newsletter that is put out by Charlie Sykes and Jonathan Last. And uh, Charlie Sykes was saying the same thing that a lot of people have been saying, that... Um, Kevin, well, actually, Charlie Sykes is taking it a step further. Not only that Kevin McCarthy is going to have a much tougher time leading this Congress. Charlie Sykes said that he thinks it's 50-50 whether in the, that McCarthy will end up as the speaker. Because apparently there is a group of moderate Republicans. Some of these are Republicans that one in congressional districts where the previous congressperson had been Democratic, districts where Joe Biden had won in the presidential race, but these Republicans won. And um, they have been caucusing together, and they have decided they don't want to be associated with the nut jobs in their party. You know, they don't want to go back to their constituents two years from now to run for re-election and have to defend 85,000 different crazy investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop, etc., and so forth. So they are getting together, and they are a group that is growing. Um, the one caucus uh, of moderates that's getting together, they're calling themselves the Main Street Caucus. And... Um, they are making it quite clear that they are not going to be led by the minority Alt-Right Freedom Caucus. There's close to 90 members of this new group. And the leader, the guy who co-leads it, his name is Don Bacon. He's a Republican congressman from Nebraska. He says it's time we flex our muscles. They all hope to be a moderating force because, you know, we all know Kevin McCarthy has no backbone. He has no character. He has no p- positions that he's passionate about. Kevin McCarthy's only position on any issue is what is the most popular stance I can take that will get me the most support. That's who he is. That's how he operates. And the moderates know that. And they are not going to sit back and let Marjorie Taylor Greene lead Kevin McCarthy by the nose. Politico is also reporting, in addition to Charlie Sykes, 
that a lot of moderate Republicans are want the Congress to be focused on the economy, not on crackpot investigations. Oh, yes, Kevin McCarthy, be careful what you wish for. Your life is going to be a living hell. Other news today. There was what is quite possibly uh, the final COVID briefing. Well, at least the final COVID briefing that contains Anthony Fauci. He has said that at the end of this year, he is going to step down. He is no longer going to lead the infectious disease department that he has led for decades and decades. Uh, Today, part of the reason why they did this conference is that they wanted to focus people's attention not only on COVID and the fact that you still need to get your new bivalent booster. But we are having a really bad flu season, and I'm sure you've read about all the um, RSV. It's a respiratory virus that is hitting babies and children really hard. Hospitalizations are way up. Um, That was one of the things that they talked about today, that people really... You know, yes, we survived COVID and COVID was definitely bad, but the flu also claims many victims every year. And we are looking at a bad flu season. Dr. Fauci said that this is going to this season, we are going to see an increase in the number of flu cases. Listen to what he has said about that. Hospitalizations for the flu at this point in the season are the highest in over a decade. Why is the flu so bad this year, and how much protection is the flu vaccine providing for those who have gotten it? Yeah, well, let me answer the second question first, is that the vaccine is well-matched to the circulating uh, strain. So that, again, is another really good reason to tell people what Dr. Jar and I and others have been saying about get your flu vaccine, because... That's one of the issues that we're going to be dealing with this winter that we can do something about. When you have seasons of very low flu, which got kind of bumped off the table by COVID, when you have respiratory illnesses that circulate, they sort of have niches that you very rarely have one and the other at its peak. So when we were at a peak with COVID, all the other respiratory illnesses, including RSV and including flu, were very, very low compared to other years. When you now open up in society, people now maybe are under-vaccinated. Not everybody's wearing a mask. We're trying to get back and are getting back to some degree of normality. You almost have like a rebound effect of something that was very low for two seasons. If you look at the flu over the last couple of years, in the peak of the COVID back in 2020 and 2021, We were having the lowest flu seasons on record. So it's not surprising that we're seeing it return back. So get your flu shot. Get your bivalent COVID booster. Okay. You know, you can get them the same day. I um, I, 
I did. I, you know, I mean, look at your past record. If you're somebody who reacts strongly to these things, space it out. I know a lot of people prefer to do that. Most of the time, I don't have any side effects more than a sore arm. So um, for me, it's just easier. One-stop shopping. Give me everything that I'm due for right here, right now. But please, don't forget about flu. Just because we're, we feel like we're all coming out of COVID, don't forget about flu season. Especially if you're immunocompromised or you're an older fart like me. Um, sadly, as we get older, our immune systems... They don't work as well as they did when they they were younger. As a matter of fact, if you're 65 or older, get that special flu shot. There's a flu shot that is extra extra special good for our demographic. It's got more goodness in it, and we need all the goodness we can get. We're going to talk more politics, take some calls, talk more news right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. We have a lot to get to today. We're going to talk about our regular politics. We're going to talk about the news of the day. We are going to talk about how you can take care of the planet. First, though, let's go to the phone lines. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, how are you? Fine, thank you. And I wanted to echo your sentiments with regard to uh, everything that's going around. Um, I was double and triple vaccinated, got the new uh, variant, variant booster, and also my flu shot the same day. And lo and behold, a month later, um, I'm convinced that my girlfriend and I both contracted that RSV uh, because mm. it, it didn't fit into anything else. Um, and, and, and don't be misled. It is particularly egregious with regard to the harm that it's doing to uh, young children, but that does not mean that you are free of care as an adult. It can hit you just like the flu and anything else. It's just that children can end up hospitalized, and worst case scenarios, possibly even dying from this. Uh, adults can end up, you know, if you, if you don't, don't mind being in bed for a month, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that can happen to you. So, you know, be wary of that. Um, so, again, it's not just con- it's not confined to children. Um, having said that, I think that, you know, uh, I, I think that as a society, we're not going to go backwards on, on COVID. I think that we did the right thing. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. We would have done things a little bit differently. But in many ways, I would argue that our, our response was a proper one in that it established certain protocols moving forward because we're not done with this. You know, viruses and bacteria have been with us since the dawn of time, and they're going to continue to be with us. And, you know, there's going to be another global pandemic. And now we have a blueprint for how to deal with it. And the mm-hmm. next one may be a lot more virulent than this one. And, and, and you're right with regard to the flu. I mean, a bad flu season can be 50,000, 60,000 dead in America. You know, it's just the sort of thing that we just gloss over because we don't think about it very much. But as you pointed out, if you're older, if you're immunocompromised, yes, you know, it it's, it's, can be particularly dangerous and you need to be you know, prepared for that sort of thing. But because a lot of us, including children, we're running around with masks and social distancing for a couple of years. It impacted our immune system. So now we're particularly susceptible to these sorts of things because our immune systems didn't have the chance to sort of, you know, be as active as they otherwise would have been. So now if you have a bad flu, if you have a, this RSV around, if you, if you contract, say, a new variant of COVID, you know, because you were running around with a mask doing the right thing, you know, this is the sort of the other side of that double-edged sword. Yeah, uh, because your your immune system isn't as stimulated as it otherwise would have been. 
Um, that, that's my point uh, with regard to uh, that, that issue. And I also, I think that uh, the other point that you were discussing initially with regard to uh, Kevin McCarthy and how the Republicans are going to govern, I, I think after 2018, after 2020, and now finally after 2022, the ship has started to turn for the Republican Party. And, it, you know, you had a few voices in the wilderness, you know, the Liz Cheney's and the Mitt Romney's and Kim Zingers and a few others, you know, but they were ostracized by their party. Finally, I think many of them have seen a license to speak up and to go back to being somewhat rational human beings. And they're starting to do that. And they're saying we need to right this ship. Donald Trump, you know, the crazy guy was at the wheel of the Titanic for a while. And now, you know, we can we can avoid perhaps hitting the next iceberg. If, if, again, we steer this ship in a different direction, away from Donald Trump, and learn to govern again. Because you, know, you can't have a party that's based on simply being the party of no, the party of opposition. You need Here's something I want to ask you, though, Steve. Um, I've been reading a lot of conservatives writing about this fact that it seems that there are Republicans who are publicly beginning to distance themselves from Donald Trump. But the person who wrote this essay that I thought was really interesting said that what bothered him was people aren't distancing themselves because Donald Trump is a bad, amoral man who was an unfit president and would be unfit in that office again. No, what they're saying is, oh, well, Donald Trump can't win. Look, all these candidates he endorsed, they didn't win. So we're backing away from Donald Trump, not because he's unfit to hold office, but because he doesn't seem to be a winner. And the fear there is, what if... He starts to look like a winner. What if he starts to draw crowds again, especially now that Elon Musk has given him back Twitter? What if he starts to look like a winner again? If your only reason for not supporting Donald Trump is that you see him as a loser and then he becomes a winner, well, those people are just going to fall in line again. That was, I thought, an interesting point. And I think you're right, because what many of these people are trying to do is thread the needle. So on the one hand, they realize that their future does not lie with Donald Trump. On the other hand, there is a large base of Donald Trump supporters, Trumpian supporters, that may be willing to back someone who's trump light or like a Donald Trump. So they want to make sure that they don't alienate those people because they need those people to turn out when, it comes, uh, when Election Day comes around. Uh, so I, I think that, again, they're trying to thread the needle and saying, yes, move away from mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Exactly. Um, okay. Don't don't alienate those people, however. We need them entirely. So don't, you know, so call Donald Trump perhaps a crazy person or just simply say he can't win, which, you know, which means that to sort of other sane people, I would argue that that translates into, well, they turned away from Donald Trump. So it really doesn't matter why. It's sort of a polite way of turning away from Donald Trump. And behind closed doors, I've been dealing with these people for years. No matter what they've said in public, most of them thought Donald Trump was absolutely crazy. And yeah. it's just that they went, went along for the ride. Um, everybody in Washington knew that. I mean, for years, you know, White House West Wing positions, you know, are something that are coveted. People will, will throw their mother under the bus to get one of these positions. They went unfilled because no one wanted to be part of the Trump administration. He had to go to, to state and local governments to find people to fill the positions that they weren't remotely qualified to fill. And and so yeah again this is this is where we are I think that the, the Republican Party is is again trying to move away from Donald Trump while while trying to maintain that base that he brings with him and again it's that difficult needle to thread for them so yeah yeah, yeah I think both things are true yeah thank you Steve um, thank you for the for, thank you for the call uh, let's go back to the phone lines Jim is calling in from Chicago hello Jim 
Hi, Joe. How are you? Good. I'm totally, I'm totally exhausted with this religion being injected into, into politics. I listen to the religious stations, and they all lean Republican because they think they're metaphysically right that uh, Republicans are going to go to heaven <laughs> and Democrats are going to go to hell. Yeah. And it's exhausting because it's so stupid. When Kennedy ran for president, Billy Graham couldn't stand the idea of him being president because he was a Catholic. Norman Vincent Peale, another Protestant minister of that era, couldn't stand the idea of him being a president. He had to go down to the religious groups in the South and say, oh, no, I'm not going to have the Pope interject any thought in our politics and so on, with his hat in his hand. I'm so tired of religion being a chick. If people need an abortion or somebody needs a sex change or whatever the case may be, these are physical things that happen in a doctor's office. It has nothing to do with me or my conscience. When I go and vote Democratic, I don't consider uh, moralistic things. You understand what I mean, Joe? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's the way I vote. And I've voted Democrat all my life. So uh, nothing's going to change my mind because... I, I consider, you know, health care and unions and uh, things that help the individual. But anyway, it's, it, 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 it's so tiresome to hear it over and over and over again. It certainly uh, is. Anyway, just to say, yeah, I mean to bum you out. But anyway, Joan, <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, Jim. Yeah. Let's squeeze in uh, one more phone call. David is calling from San Francisco. Hey, Dave. How, David, how are you? Oh, thanks, Joan. I uh, hope you have a nice holiday. All the other Me listeners. too. Um, you know, just thinking about the principle of America, the social contract, that we the people have this huge pot of money on April 15th, and we expect honest politicians to spend that money wisely. And when you have people like uh, these Republicans, whether they're cowardly uh, in the face of someone like Trump or whether they're cowardly in the face of people like the Kochs uh, or whether they're cowardly regarding the whole issue about uh, fake electors who would actually go out of their way to steal uh, the uh, electoral Okay, I'm sorry, David. Um, we lost your call. Uh, thank you for calling. Um, we actually uh, should probably be taking a break right now anyway uh, and moving on. When we come back after this, we're going to speak with Terry Cosgrove. Speaking of people who are stepping away after a long and successful career, Terry's been a part of Personal Pack Illinois for a long time, and uh, he is going to be Moving on to other things, but we're going to have a conversation with him right after this. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Your long drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Terry Cosgrove from Personal Pack is joining us. Terry, how nice to talk to you. How are you doing? I am fine, Joan. I'm a lot better than when I taught you a few weeks ago after this election. So yes. I'm glad to be here and 
thank you for all you did to um, really inform your listeners and everyone about the importance of the Illinois Supreme Court, because uh, I think people listened. And um, actually, I just got some, you know, when we talked, I mentioned over and over that people had to go to the bottom of the ballot. And the drop-off rate between the top of the ballot and judicial races is usually about 15%. And in Lake and DuPage County, it was less than 1%. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. What wonderful so news! Really took that, you know, took that advice and that nudging seriously to go all the way to the bottom of the ballot to find these Supreme Court justices. So, um, so, um, so that the conclusion of the story is the Illinois, um, the Illinois should be safe for at least the next decade beyond because we have a five to two um, pro-choice Supreme Court in the state of Illinois, which means that not only are the women of Illinois um, able to access uh, abortion care under our progressive uh, abortion laws, but the 56 million women throughout the Midwest who, where states have outlawed abortion or have made it dangerous and impossible to get, um, they still have to travel to Illinois, but at least we're here for them, and that that should give all of us just um, great pause that we, uh, that we are able to accomplish that, so... And and also, you know, all of the good work that our legislators have done in the last few years, um, getting the um, things cleared off the books so that, you know, right. when Roe v. Wade fell, that nothing would be, you know, an, an automatic lock for going into effect. Right. Um, that that work could have very easily been undone had oh. we lost the Supreme Court. There are lawsuits, Joan. There are lawsuits right now, today, sitting in the Illinois court system to to overturn the Reproductive Health Act, which is what you're referring to when you're saying, you know, we got that law got rid of our spousal consent law, 24-hour waiting periods, all of those things that were enjoined because of Roe. There's a lawsuit against the Reproductive Health Act, and there's also a lawsuit against HB 40, which um, got rid of our trigger law. We were only one of four states in 2017 that had a trigger law, which for, for your for your listeners that don't know what that is, it said that the day Roe v. Wade was overturned, life would begin at conception in Illinois, which would have outlawed abortion with no exceptions, um, and also outlawed the most commonly used forms of birth control and the IUD. So those lawsuits are still pending um, in in the lower courts, and um, and perhaps they will stay there. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not in a position to comment on any. <laughs> any lawsuits. All I know is that the ultimate uh, decider of such things, should they get appealed there, um, is that those laws will get a fair hearing, you know, from from the um, incoming Illinois Supreme Court. And Terry, and that's all we ever asked for was a fair hearing. Yeah. Uh, and and not for people to put their personal religious uh, right-wing views in the place of what the Illinois Constitution says and what the laws of Illinois say. And I don't think that's too much to ask for. No, I don't think so either. You are um, probably more familiar with um, the thinking of uh, abortion opponents. Um, I understand if your religion says this is... um, this is something that's bad that you would be opposed to it. Okay, I get that. Um, right. I find that the argument against 
contraception to be much shakier. But the one that I really don't understand, if people really want to be called pro-life, if they like to have people think that they are just so supportive of life, I don't understand the opposition to IVF, in vitro fertilization, which desperate couples use to try to create a family. Um, can you, is that, is that religion sure. based too? And if so, I don't understand oh, yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, it's really, it's based on two things, the way I understand the anti-choice arguments. And, um, and I am a student of the anti-choice movement. I subscribe to a lot of their newsletters and I go to their websites because I want to be informed, you know, knowing, mm-hmm. um, Know thy enemy. Know thine enemy is my uh, is my motto in all of this, and I want to know what they're thinking, what arguments yeah. they're putting forward, so so that we know what they are, but we can counter them. So their their opposition to um, IVF is based in two yeah, in two areas. The first is they just don't believe that um, they believe that it's unnatural. That no, that um, the only way that a um, that a conception should take place is through is through um, a married couple, a heterosexual married couple, um, um, in the eyes of God, having uh, sex and and becoming pregnant that way. And they think any other in they think which goes to their opposition to birth control as well. I mean, it's just that's the only thing they believe that is the boundaries of what they see conception. And so anything that gets in the way of that or or subverts it, uh, which is probably not the best word, but anything that that goes around that um, is what they're against. So IVF is seen as a is a medical intervention, as a messing around with, with God's order, <sighs> how children should come into this world. So that's number one. And then the one that um, the second is, um, is selective reduction. When uh, when when a woman has uh, multiple pregnancies, and uh, and the doctor detri- now I am not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, so I, so I don't want to pretend to be one on your show. Um, but um, it, 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 when there are multiple pregnancies, and the doctor and the woman have a conversation, and they discuss. Yeah, if they know, if they put a bunch viable. Right, yeah, they don't yeah. know how many embryos are going to survive the transplant process, so they always right. put extra embryos. And if for some exactly. reason they all survive, then the woman is faced with, you know, do I want to try to carry six babies to term, knowing that that is going to put them all medically at risk right. and that I may right. end up not carrying any of them to term? Yeah. It's a very, you know, there's several different angles to this of complication for the woman, for her health, and also for the survival of those, uh, of, of those eggs that were implanted. So, you know, it's, it's a medical, it's a medical procedure. And again, you know, they believe that selective reduction is taking a human life. So if you don't, um, first of all, they, they disagree with the whole process to begin with. So like I said originally, and then when you go to step two, which is um, the whole issue of selective reduction, they really object to that because they consider if um, if there's three embryos, if you take out two of them, that you're killing two children. I mean, that, that's what they believe. Mm-hmm. That's their, um, and of course, you know, my response to all of this is that's fine. You, that this is a free country. You have a right to 
your religious beliefs. You have a right to believe what you believe, regardless of how much I or you or anyone else might disagree. So the bumper sticker on my car says, against abortion, question mark, don't have one. (laughs) And that's the way I feel about that, about IVF, around equal marriage. You know, if you're against equal marriage, my suggestion is don't marry someone of the same gender. It's pretty. How about it? Wow. Yeah. 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 What a concept. And if you're against abortion, my suggestion would be don't have one. If you're against birth well, that's, control. You're, you're getting to the crux of the matter of what yeah, really don't, bothers don't me. Birth control. Yeah. Live your life however you see fit. But don't make me live my life according to your ideas of what a good life is, according to your ideas of what your religion says is the appropriate way to live. That's what drives me crazy. It's this idea that um, ev- that it's almost like, you know, Mike Flynn saying, well, you know, we really should as a country only have one religion. Really, Mike? Right. Really? Yeah. Well, that's, see, there's no end to that kind of, you know, to, to that intrusion into our individual rights and, and, and democratic principles because they do believe this is a, you know, this this was founded as a Christian nation and so anyone else that doesn't, you know, that doesn't uh, follow that is is somehow sinning and is not a good American. I mean, whether you're, um, you know, whether you're um, Jewish, whether you uh, follow Islam, whether you're you're not a religious believer at all, they they think that's all wrong. And, and, you know, we should all just go away, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. What what is supposed to happen? What is supposed to happen to people well, of other other faiths and other ideas? Or, or races. We're also yeah. high, Joan. Yeah, really, because as I tell, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to have gone through the, um, to have lived through the whole AIDS crisis at its worst in the in the 80s and 90s. And these, these right-wing preachers without any um, self-awareness or abandon would say that, um, all gay people should die because we we don't we don't belong here. I mean, they are very they're very very open about that, and they feel the same way about women who uh, who die of of you know carrying a pregnancy to term, um, at a woman who wants an abortion, a woman who's suffering from a miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy. They think it's absolutely fine because that's that's the way God ordered things, and anyone that violates it. Um, they're re- they're openly admitting now that you know it's you know a ten year old gets raped and gets pregnant you know that's too bad you know a woman who's mm-hmm. you know miscarrying and you know and hemorrhaging in a hospital emergency room gets too bad you know we're that's just our view is you know you got you know as you have to. You just have to take one for the team, I guess, you know, to, to the Terry Night Live, uh, you know, op- um, skit with. Um, so it's just, you know, that that's just the way they believe. So that's what we're up against. You know, they, they don't believe there is a place for us, uh, whether we're pro-choice, whether, you know, with white supremacy, whether you're a person of color, whether you're LGBTQ, um, if there's just there's no place for us in their vision of America, of the world. That's their world belief. I don't know what they plan on, how they plan on dealing with um, the billions of other people who share this planet with us. Um, and I, Maybe they don't understand how outnumbered we, um, at least for myself, <laughs> are white European uh, descendants. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're a very, very small uh, proportion of the population in this world. So, uh, so I just think we should be a little more careful. That's all. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, Terry, we need to take a break. Terry sure. Cosgroves sure. with Personal Pack Illinois. We are talking about the midterm elections and larger issues, of course, as well. We'll be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Terry Cosgrove, who is with Personal Pack Illinois. Terry, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Go ahead, Paul. You're on with me and Terry Cosgrove. Thank you, John. Um, You know, other than we don't make our laws based on religious beliefs, these things that we're talking about are not even, they're trumped up, pardon the pun, they're trumped up, they're made up religious beliefs. They aren't really Christian in the sense that they, for one thing, all Christians don't agree on abortion or in vitro fertilization. So that we can't even find a commonality amongst Christians. And it's, it's, even, when the, even if the Catholic Church, for instance, is against abortion, that doesn't make it a Christian belief per se, because the Catholic Church has had hundreds rather than dozens of edicts over the centuries that are not necessarily found in the Bible, such as, remember, uh, they don't eat meat on Friday. Oh, except fish. But remember when, remember when eating <laughs> fish and chicken meant, uh, meant you were a vegetarian? Oh, I only, I'm a vegetarian. I only eat fish and chicken. Well, that would never fly today. <laughs> lots of them. Lots of edicts. I mean, what about, uh, I mean, confession is not in the Bible. That, that came account in the Lateran Council, Lateran IV in the 13th century in 1215. Indulgences, that's not in the Bible. These are all edicts that the Church had that are not Christian beliefs per se. And... When we look at the the constitutional effects are, what about the due process, for instance, of a woman in an abortion? It says both the 14th Amendment and the 5th Amendment, which means it applies both federally and at the state level, says that no person, and I don't care whether it's an adult or a, a minor, shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And equal protection. So, but you're, the 14th Amendment says you're not entitled to due process or equal protection until you're born. So when it comes down to a choice of who has due process, the woman or the fetus, I think it's the woman. And so there's no, I don't see where this. I don't well, that would be my vote. <laughs> right, right. And Paul, why are we, your why first are we Paul? arguing? Why are we arguing religious beliefs? This is not how we make our laws. And that's what they're trying to do. Exactly. Into making right, our laws that way. Right. Well, yeah. first of all, ahead, you're, you're, you're correct that there is no agreement uh, among you know among Christians or or religious people about abortion. So I want to I, w- I want to clarify that you're 100 percent right about that. Um, and uh, what 
what I should have said is their religious view because it, it is a sect. And also, Catholics get abortions at a higher rate than any other religious religion. So, um, so, and in every in all the polling we've done, Catholics are as pro-choice as the rest of the country is. So, you are correct on that point. I will say though that um, that in Prior to in between when the Supreme Court uh, leaked opinion and when Roe was overturned, I got into so many discussions with people. I won't say arguments, although they did border <laughs> on an argument. Lively um, discussions, of, perhaps, Terry? That said, yeah, lively discussions. And people were saying, oh, Terry, there's the Fifth Amendment, there's the Fourteenth Amendment, all the arguments that you brought up, Paul, which are all legitimate if you are talking to people who are viewing the law and the Constitution from a legal standpoint. The problem is Amy Coney Barrett, Samuel Alito, and all these right-wingers on the court, including Clarence Thomas, don't care about the law, because if they did, they never would have overturned Roe. What these people do is they substitute their personal religious beliefs for the law. So we can argue about due process or the Constitution or the 14th Amendment or the Fifth Amendment till we're blue in the face, but we're talking a different language from these right-wingers, and that's what was so fearful about them taking over the Illinois Supreme Court, because we have a right to privacy, um, clause in our constitution, but if you're if if Mark Curran got on the court who believed that abortion was murder and it was wrong and should never exist, he wouldn't care what the Illinois Constitution exactly. Said. So, so that's what our our dilemma is when dealing with these right wingers because they don't view the Constitution or our laws as legitimate. They think mm-hmm. they're wrong. And it doesn't matter what the what the Constitution or um, or our laws say, because they're going to substitute their personal religious belief for the law. So that's that. that so that's the only thing I would counter with. I agree with you, except the other side doesn't see it that way. So it's it's there's no there's no equal argument here on that. They, they see one thing yeah. a, a different way than we do. Uh, Terry, I don't know if you if you noticed this, but. When I think it was the New York Times reported that there was uh, somebody who um, was very good friends with a couple who was very close to Justice Alito. And he's now has it. Yeah, he he now uh, is uh, not of the same religious uh, sect as he was before. And he's now saying publicly that not only was the Dobbs decision leaked by someone who we apparently can't figure out who. Um, but also that Alito himself, this reverend is charging, leaked uh, a 2014 yeah, no, no. decision uh, yeah, that no, where Hobby no, Lobby no, didn't want to pay for yeah. contraception for their workers because it was against their religion. And yeah, and it's and uh, Dick Durbin said publicly that John Roberts, as chief justice, had better step in and do a thorough investigation of the current leak and the 2014 leak, and that he should also, he'd, he better come up with some binding ethics for the chief, for the justices to follow, because if John Roberts didn't do it, Dick Durbin said he was going to do it and Congress no, was no, going to do it. Have to, because Roberts' uh, response was, well, we haven't, we have ethics, and that was it. No, no, I, I totally agree. They, um, and, you know, there has been stuff reported 
um, over the years about how the right wingers through this, you know, Supreme Court um, foundation um, have been have had influence over the court. And, and this is just another piece of evidence. But, Joan, before we go, I want to make one comment. I'm already hearing in some circles, oh, you know, the election didn't turn out as bad as we thought it would. Um, everything's fine. And I want to be really clear to everyone listening. The right wingers are out there organizing for the next election. They never give up. And unfortunately, uh, Democrats and some progressives after Bill Clinton was elected, after after Barack Obama was elected, we think we've made it to the promised land and there's nothing more to do. Um, I hope no one takes that view. We 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 just dodged a bullet this election. They are organizing. They are getting ready to steal the next election. They are not. They're not giving up a single inch here. So I hope everyone stays engaged and continues to organize. There's a lot of work that we can do to, to lay the groundwork for the 2024 election. We just shouldn't start paying attention two months before the primary or two months before the general election. So there, the organizations that people belong to, the groups that they have influence on, they should all be talking now about how they're going to organize their community around issues and around voter registration and getting people out to vote now. Now is the time uh, to help to start having those discussions. How about this? Let's say after Thanksgiving is the time. <laughs> give everyone a week off. Um, but I'm serious about that. We really can't rest on our laurels. Um, and I am saying that as someone who feels really good about the Illinois election results, you yeah. know, about the Supreme Court, the General Assembly, how, you know, all of the, the congressional candidates, even though I wasn't involved at all with those races, but, you know, the wins by Sean Casson, Lauren Underwood, Nikki Badinsky, all great news. But you know what? That it's not over. We have to remain vigilant, and democracy requires our constant vigilance. And so I hope everyone takes that to heart. And uh, I just want to make sure I got that in before we end it. So. No, that's that's so pertinent because the other side, at least in part, literally goes after these issues with religious fervor. Many of them, it is beyond reason or or just the laws on the books. Yeah. It is literally a, a kind of a mission. And, you know, Terry, you're not the only person that I've talked to. I was talking to uh, Isaac Wright a week or two ago, and he's an expert on rural voting. And he, he in a different sort of venue, he echoed, echoed that same sentiment. He said, what we need to do, especially in rural areas, is create a democratic infrastructure that exists 365 days a year. You can't just sweep into an area two or three months before an election and think you're going to put together an organization and knock on doors and you're just going to get everything you wanted. He said the same thing. This isn't a just, okay, we're going to, oh, my gosh, Terry, we dodged a bullet. Yeah, everything's great. Now let's not pay any attention till the next election. That ain't how it works. That's not how the other side works. And we have to bring that same kind of fervor to it. Right. Right. In the inroads that right wing Republicans are making in various communities across the country is because they are there 365 days a year um, opening Republican community centers in uh, in in 
different neighborhoods. I, one of the things that I was so impressed with, and I and I believe they're duplicating it this time with Raphael Warnick's special election two years ago. They, ha- I mean, the the amount of granular organization that went on there, where um, they had um, they had Filipinos on staff talking to the Filipino community, they had Haitians talking to, ha- and they had been working all year leading up to the presidential election, and as soon as. The um, the runoff happened. Everyone was back on the ground working with these organizations, working with these community groups, uh, working with these neighborhood people to make sure that that people were connected. You know, the the thing is, we have to get people connected to politics as it impacts the issues they care about. So mm-hmm. in rural communities, there's a whole set of issues that 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 people can be that that can bring people along to be interested in who their elected officials are because of those issues. There's the same thing in urban areas. There are issues that, that people need to feel connected, that, that there's a connection between the politics and the issues that they care about and the issues that impact their lives every single day, you know, whether it's public transportation, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's, you know, you can just list everything, you know, that, so that's really our challenge going forward. And unfortunately, the right wing has been doing this for a few decades now, and we're reaping the um, unfortunate benefits of it. And now um, we have to, you know, pick up the pace here. And because that's how we're going to save our democracy. And we're yep. going to get rollback. Uh, we're going to get all kinds of things back. We're going to get we're going to leave our next generation a, a planet and a and a state in a city that is livable from the environmental standpoint and a lot of other standpoints. Terry, thank you so much. I love talking with you. It is always a delight. Thanks and for I'm taking on your show. So well, it's, it's not going away. Time. You may leave personal pack, but you are stuck with me, buddy. Okay. I, I'm going to hold you to that, Joan. <laughs> oh, oh okay. you're going to regret those words, Terry Cosgrove. <laughs> uh, I'll see. You're going to regret it. <laughs> okay. We are going to take a break for news. We are going to talk more politics right after this. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. Someone I met for the first time before this midterm election was uh, State Representative Larry Walsh, Jr., He represents the 86th district in Illinois, and we had a fascinating conversation. Uh, The district he represents has uh, a lot of rail traffic. We talked about recycling. We talked about a lot of the issues that I want to address this week. So we asked uh, Representative Walsh if he would join us again, and he has graciously agreed to. Hello, Larry. How are you? Good afternoon, Joan. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, There's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but uh, I think we have to talk about what is timely, because I think you have probably more insight into this than most people I know. Uh, There were negotiations going on with the Department of Transportation and uh, freight rail companies 
And supposedly, you know, they were trying to work out a deal. Well, all of a sudden it turns out they didn't. And now the possibility of a is a nationwide freight rail strike is hanging over us. What would that do for, say, a district like yours? Uh, it, it would be just economically disastrous, specifically around Christmas time. People are ordering their Christmas presents. They're getting shipped into the area. And if the railways were to shut down uh, due to a strike, uh, it would it would it would extremely impact the the supply chain here throughout the Midwest region. You know, I think when people read things like this, because, you know, uh, before I talked to you and learned about how interconnected everything is, you know, I would have thought, oh, well, you know, freight rail. I don't know. You know, maybe that's I don't know what those kind of cars carry, but it's nothing to do with me. You know, that's not going to affect my life. Uh, and yet almost everything travels by rail, doesn't it? Yeah, whether it's your TVs, uh, your uh, just regular uh, household products. I, I mean, everything comes from, at least in my region, it comes from the West Coast at Long Island and comes across the country and, and it stops in Kansas City and then it stops right outside of Chicago and Joliet in I, I mean, the, the the amount of commerce that flows through Will County uh, these days is is just over the last ten years, it would be in the trillion dollar uh, dollar amount of the amount of commerce that has uh, come through our area. I, it, it's just it's a, it's a big it's a big deal. So hopefully, uh, cooler heads will prevail in this uh, negotiations and. We can keep America moving. So, And here's what I didn't understand. You know, obviously these are freight trains. They carry a lot of goods. But I was reading in the Washington Post that this would also affect commuters because a lot of passenger railroads use tracks owned by the freight railroads. And is the implication that if the freight railroads are on strike, nobody is allowed to use their tracks? That. That is that is one of the concerns, specifically with Amtrak for co- uh, cross country uh, uh, travel on on rail would be uh, adversely affected, and even uh, locally uh, with a handful of the metro lines that run from the suburbs into the city could be affected uh, if this were to take effect. So um, it, it's it's wide spanned and and. You know, there is, that's why the president got involved in the negotiations. I mean, it's it's the rail, the rails move America and, uh, and if they're not operating, uh, you know, it it affects us uh, just on many different fronts. And in the Washington Post article, you know, one of the things that you did um, that really made me understand this when we spoke pre-election is you connected the dots. That's some of what I'm seeing in the Washington Post article, because they're saying, well, uh, if there's no freight rail, um, there's um, all the chemical manufacturing plants can't ship their stuff, which means that the chlorine that water treatment plants can get might be in short supply. I mean, it's we are we live in such an interconnected world right now that it's nothing just happens in a vacuum anymore, that there's always a ripple effect, isn't there? 
Oh, that, 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 that there is, and it's not just America. I, I mean, we're part of a global economy that, uh, as much as some people would like to say that we're not, uh, we're interconnected worldwide. And, and, you know, one of the keystones to that is our rail system that has been running strong now for the last 200 years. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just, the goods and services that we as consumers and residents, we enjoy and kind of don't think about, those are some of the very things that get shipped across the country that that we rely on, whether it's chlorine, whether it's gasoline, uh, uh, you know, just household products, toilet paper. I, I mean, that kind of stuff is mm-hmm. all part of it. And it, it, to the very minuscule thing you got in your house that that you may not think anything about more than likely it comes across the country on a trade yeah and you might think to yourself if you're listening to this conversation well you know so hire some trucks move all that stuff by truck it, apparently it would take almost half a million trucks to make up for the freight that is carried by our railroad lines uh, yeah, you're right, and, and and a lot of the a lot of the growing pains that the Joliet region and Will County is experiencing is the increase in truck traffic. And if we didn't have those trains going across, it, it would just multiply that number by tens of thousands. And, yeah. and um, you know that's what makes it an efficient form of transportation to move goods. Uh, you know, across state lines. Well, Larry, part of the reason why I invited you to join us today was to talk. <laughs> yeah, I know I got distracted. Was to talk about the Electric Vehicle Recycling Act, um, right. HB fifty one sixty, and you know, because I don't want to interrupt you once we get started. Let's take a commercial break right now, and then we can just move on to what was actually the agenda for today right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by State Representative Larry Walsh. He represents Illinois' 86th district. If you don't know off the top of your head, there's parts of Joliet, Ingalls Park, Preston Heights, Rockdale, Elwood. Um, he is currently, one of the things that he is working on is the Electric Vehicle Recycling Act. It's House Bill 5160. And as part of our whole look at making the planet more livable, the stuff we can do, this fits right in with that theme. Tell us exactly what this act will do, Larry. Well, so 5160 is an initiative of the auto and truck recyclers of Illinois. So your junk cars, um, those folks that deal with that, um, as the onset of electric vehicles come into more of a mainstream reality, 
um, their purpose in, in introducing this piece of legislation is to actually regulate that. Right now, a vehicle, a gas-powered vehicle or truck, um, they're regulated on how to dispose of all the different components of a vehicle when it is no longer useful. And as we get into this electric vehicle, there's a lot of things in there that aren't regulated. And so that was the purpose of introducing 5160. Um, As you know, last year, or this year, I should say, earlier this year, we were on a compressed schedule in Springfield. I mean, we went in in January and... um, we were planning or we planned to adjourn on April 8th. So it compressed everything into a shorter period of time. And so the folks that, that brought this bill to me, basically their idea was that, hey, let's put this out there. Let's start the conversation with the manufacturers of the batteries, the manufacturers of the vehicles, so we can have a comprehensive discussion about how we move forward when these vehicles are no longer useful and how do we dispose of them? How do we put a recycling program into place, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's kind of where we're at. Um, You know, we ran out of time in April 8th. There's nothing moved on this bill and it's still sitting in rules committee and we adjourn, uh, Signy die for the 102nd General Assembly on uh, January 11th would be the last day, and that's when the new 103rd General Assembly takes place. Um, I've talked with the uh, advocates for this bill, and we plan on reintroducing it again in the 103rd General Assembly. And I've actually, since you called me, because I had to look it up, <laughs> to, to, what's 5160? Oh, that's my bill. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, uh, it, it, uh, we're, I've already started having conversations with the manufacturers and, and others to kind of start spearheading these talks as we move forward and, and see if we can come up with a comprehensive bill. Uh, it might take a couple of years, but, uh, we're going to have those conversations. So that's kind of what 5160 is in a nutshell. Well, I know that. Um, all this sort of uh, recycling and being um, a responsible steward for our world is very important to you. One of the things that I wanted to give people this week are, you know, yes, we, we talk about stuff like House Bill 5160 and the larger issues and the bigger pictures of what we need to accomplish as a society. But I think for most people, one thing that's really helpful are things that they can accomplish in their own lives. I know this is something that you've you've thought about. Like, what are some things that you do to be a responsible consumer or to be gentle with the planet in the way you live? Well, I my wife and I, we pretty much recycle everything under the sun. <laughs> Our garbage, we've got two garbage cans, one's recycling and one's garbage. And uh, usually the recycling bin is full or over full, and the, uh, the garbage is a little bit on the left side. I, I do know that. But, now, is that because you live in a community that will pick up recycling and recycle it, or do you actually drive it somewhere? 
No, no, no. They they come. But we have uh, uh, waste management with our village has a recycling program that you know the cardboard, aluminum foil, uh, plastics, whatever you can on that side. Uh, we uh, they, they, that's the program that they offer. So. Uh, which is very beneficial. I mean, it, it's well utilized throughout our community, and uh, you know, glad to see it it work that way. And it keeps it out of the landfill. Uh, uh-huh. You know, a few few years back, I uh, I passed a bill with the Chemical Industry Council that would take your styrene, so your styrofoam cups and like the lids that are on your Starbucks coffee cup, those are not recyclable. Huh. Uh, to throw in a recycling bin, so there is a there is a process now that uh, has been utilized in Ohio, and we passed the bill to allow it on a pilot program at one of my styrene plants down along 55, to where they would be able to recycle that. And uh, how they do it is they basically heat it back to its molecular structure, and then reuse it. So, like, you're lining within your refrigerator. That's styrene. And if that, you know, go to recycle a refrigerator, they tear that out, that would end up in a landfill. Now we got a process in place that would allow that to be, you know, molted back down into its molecular structure and then reused again in another component. So, you know, those are some of the things that we've been able to do here in Illinois, that Duncan. I mean, it's not, it's not a lot of fanfare, and it's not high profile. But uh, you know, it's smart things that we can do to, you know, move uh, move our society into more of a reusable society that that utilizes the technologies that we have. Yeah, and when it comes to these kinds of things, the easier you can make it for people the more likely they are to participate. Many years ago, I had a vacation place, um, and it was a, we had to pay for private pickup of the garbage. And I remember getting a notice from the company saying, you know, we've decided to start, you know, um, a recycling program, so we're not going to just pick up all your garbage and, and, and throw it all in the same place. We're going to do uh, recycling. You, to you have to have twelve new bins, and I was like, "Excuse me," and it was like, "Yes, one bin for brown glass, one bin for clear glass, one bin for green glass, and oh, by the way, make sure you soak everything in water and you take all the labels off first. And it was like, I, by the time I finished reading this letter, I, I was laughing. I mean, it was like, who is going to do that? You know, who, who is going to, who has the time? Okay. We're going to soak off all the labels. Um, we're going to wash. If you're giving, if you're recycling another bin for cans, make sure you wash the cans because there can't be any food residue. Right. And 12 they wanted in addition to the trash can, 12 right. other bins containers. For recycling, uh, you know that program yeah. didn't last very long, Larry. No, no, no. And so, like, we have waste management, and they've been a good partner to work with within the different communities, uh, 
specifically in Will County. And I remember when they brought it in, you know, that, that's kind of what it was when it first started. You had to separate your glasses and your cans and your aluminum and all that kind of stuff. Nowadays, I mean, they just throw it in there and they have the sorting processes in their facilities to get the stuff that they can recycle to the recycling entities. And then anything that goes in there that's not, they can get out and then then transfer to a, uh, a landfill if need be. But uh, they've been a great partner uh, with the communities to ease that program to get more people to buy in to do that recycling. So mm-hmm. um, that's, been a, that's been a huge plus in our area. And secondly, that, that creates jobs. I, I, you know, somebody's got to be there to run those processes and inspect that stuff. And, you know, and they're good-paying jobs. They sustain a good family with, you know, benefits, vacation, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it's a plus-plus. Yeah. Um, we only have a, a minute or so left, Larry. Is there one message that you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, seeing that it's the Thanksgiving holiday, I wish everybody, <laughs> uh, all your listeners, a, a great and hopefully a, a healthy Thanksgiving to enjoy time with family and friends and uh, getting into the holiday season where everybody seems to be a little bit more cheerful. So I hope that continues into 2023. <laughs> Yes. If, um, you know, maybe this is our chance to build bridges politically when everybody is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's let's get together and, and get along more than we are decisive, because there's more than we're having common than uh, than we don't. So that's right. That's that's absolutely right. And I've actually seen a lot of articles saying, you know, how are we going to get along with our various family members? And that's exactly what the advice is. Find the thing that you agree on. And frankly, I've actually had political consultants say the same thing, that if you're going to be somewhere where you know the people's politics are very different, find an issue that you can agree on, something that you both care about, and start from there. Yep, that's how you build build, uh, friendships with just, you know, Common agreeability. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. not, it's not hard. It's just taking the effort to do it. So. Yep. Well, thank you for taking time out. I hope you have a wonderful yes, Thanksgiving. And, um, and I will be talking to you in the new year. Sounds great, Joan. You have a wonderful Thanksgiving yourself. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Larry. We are going to take a break. And we're going to continue in this vein a little bit longer when we come back. We are going to uh, be talking with some people who are uh, in charge of energy policy at the Illinois Environmental Council. Um, They've got some ideas for us, too, and what some things that the city of Chicago is doing. The city programs director is going to be here. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This week, in addition to talking politics and the news of the day, uh, we are going to be talking about our planet and ways that we can be a little more responsible with it. 
Um, we decided to talk to a couple of experts in the area. Uh, Samira Hannison is the Energy Policy Director at the Illinois Environmental Council. And uh, Iana Simba is the City Programs Director. They join us now. Um, sorry, my, my pages were floating around. I'm not usually that stumbly when it comes to names. I apologize to both of you. Um, I'm Joan, by the way. We've never met. Thanks for joining us um, to talk about some of these issues. Um, let's uh, start with you, Samira. Um, let's talk about reduce, reuse, recycle. That's the, that's the mantra, right? It is. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for having us on. Um, yeah, reduce, reuse, recycle um, is certainly the mantra. However, we're also looking to um, try to uh, upcycle. I want to throw that in there as well. Um, yeah, now, what do I, people you know, mean by that, techniques. Samira? What is upcycling? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, you know, first and foremost, we, we do want to try to reduce um, how much waste that we acquire. So, you know, keeping our consumption choices uh, in check, reuse as much as possible, um, and recycle whatever we are, you know, done using um, and try to divert um, that waste from the landfill. Um, upcycling is a part of reuse to an extent um, where you are taking an item and uh, giving it a, a new life. Um, so it might be taking like an old um, soda can and using it as a planter for plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, this whole concept um, has been around for many decades. And uh, despite the push for that mantra, so to speak, um, you know, the national average recycling rate is around 32%. Um, and according to the 2018 Cook County Solid Waste Management Plan, um, suburban Cook County's rate is around 19%, and Chicago's is much, much lower at around 9%. Um, and now, does, when you say that, is, do you mean that only 9% of the people who could recycle do? Is that what the 9% is? It is. Uh, so that's the participation rate. Um, recycling rate, uh, which is actually a little similar in Chicago, but the recycling rate is um, how much waste is and recyclables are actually going through the recycling system and diverted from landfills. Because I was thinking maybe it means like of all the things, um, of all the items that could be recycled, only 9% of it. So it's 9% of, of people. And how do you boost those numbers? Yeah, um, well, to your, your uh, point, about 75% of our waste is recyclable. Um, mm-hmm. So we are truly failing to capture, you know, the majority of our recyclable materials and diverting that waste from uh, from the landfill. Um, but to increase, to your second point, to increase our, you know, recycling rates, um, there's a, a, a big portion, of course, is um, consumer buy-in and what everyday people can do, um, you know, to ensure that they're sorting properly. Um, I know the gentleman you had on before, you know, was talking, um, both of you were talking about uh, your own experiences with curbside recycling and the frustrations um, that exist there. Um, but you know, a lot of the conversation could look towards producer responsibility, um, and that is a policy angle that uh, 
we're very interested in, um, where it's less so on the consumer side, but how can we ensure that there's less waste entering mm-hmm. uh, the system to begin with? Um, you know, plastic uh, is a really, really big uh, monster in, in the conversation um, that, you know, decreases value um, each time it's recycled, whereas, you know, other materials like aluminum uh, can have more or less infinite uh, recyclability depending on, you know, its uses. Uh, Iana, I know that as city programs director at the Illinois Environmental Council, one of the parts of your job is to work with the various um, alder people in the Chicago City Council. Who do you think is easiest to work with? Who who shares this passion the way the Illinois Environmental Council is? Who are the leaders, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah. And sorry, Joan, it's Ayana. Um, Ayana, sorry, sorry. sorry. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, we have a couple of folks that we go to as our green champions. So I would say um, Alderman Matt Martin, Alderman Daniel Espada, Alderman Maria Hatton um, are really like our top three folks. Um, also Alderman Cicho Lopez and Alderman Michael Rodriguez. So really these folks that are part of the Progressive Caucus Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be most supportive of just our environmental work broadly, but especially when it comes to waste, because they understand the long-term vision, right? Like we preach this reduce, reuse, recycle, but one, we're not always practicing what we preach. And then two, what we're preaching is not always the best solution for climate change. We really need to get to a place where we're reducing the amount of waste that's going into the waste stream in the first place. Um, in addition to still trying to improve our recycling system. Um, so that's a little bit beyond the tracks, but that's some of the top that we Well, Ayana, does that mean banning things? Like I've heard people say that, you know, plastic bags need to be banned or styrofoam needs to be banned. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Um, so currently Chicago has a plastic bag tax. Ideally, we'd like to see a world where, you know, even paper bags are still being taxed, but we phase out the use or eventually basically a ban on plastic bags um, and also having a ban on styrofoam um, takeout containers. And and that's just because those things are not recyclable and they're also not recyclable when we do curbside uh, recycling. So those are things that your average municipal recycling facility is not going to be able to process. There are cases where you can recycle polystyrene or styrofoam to a certain level, but not in a way that's feasible um, or financially sound. Interesting. Um, Guys, either one of you can take this. Um, On your website, do you have information for consumers, not policymakers, you know, not older people, but information for consumers on how to be smarter and more responsible? Yes, we do. We do have um, a waste reduction landing page um, where we kind of talk about what's the state of recycling, current laws, um, and we do actually have a, a waste, a water and waste town hall that's actually later this evening um, from 6 to 7.30 where we'll talk more about what are things people can do individually, um, but then also we can try to do um, legislatively to address plastic waste. Ayana and Samira, are you guys both going to be a part of this program tonight? Ayana will be. Yeah, Samira did our energy one, um, so it'll just be myself. (laughs) Well, give us a preview, Ayana. Give us a preview of what we can learn. So we'll have um, folks from the Coalition for Plastic Reduction, which is a statewide 
uh, coalition aimed to reduce the use of plastic. And they'll be talking about, um, you know, some of the potential legislative ideas that we have coming up um, at the state level. Um, and then again, talking into, you know, what can you do as an individual? But then it's also an opportunity to give feedback from the public. Um, you know, what are people doing to reduce waste on the individual level? What are existing issues that they're having in their municipality or county? So it is one part of the town hall, but it's also going to be a conversation um, for folks to, to share uh, while also hearing from IEC. One thing that I will uh, share when it comes to plastics I understand, and I, I will say, Ayana, I understand this very vaguely, that there are different kind of plastics. Uh, some are recyclable, some are not. There's supposed to be, I've heard people tell me, well, look on the bottom or the cap or look for this uh, sign or, or that marker, and it'll tell you what to do with the plastic. I find that all very confusing. Uh, how do we simplify this, Ayana? So it is somewhat tricky and complicated. Um, I think one of the best ways is more public education um, that comes from waste haulers and municipalities. Um, you know, like I said, people will put plastic bags in the recycling bin. They'll put um, plastic wrap, or they'll put the number six, the number six plastic, which is known as like it can be styrofoam, but it can also be solo cups and things that are just not recyclable. So like education is key. There are a lot of people that do want to recycle and they want to do it the right way, but they might just be misinformed or uninformed. So we really need to emphasize the education. Yes, education. And not only for uh, consumers, but I love the fact that you guys also work with companies because I'm looking at there's this kind of uh, fruit-flavored water that I like to drink. And on the on the label, it says 100% recyclable bottle and cap. Now, that's the kind of idiot instruction that I need, Ayana. You know, uh, not that it's a 4G bottle and then, Joan, go figure out what that means. But just clear instructions that tell me, okay, yeah, this is okay. I can do this. Bottle and cap. Thank you. That was very thoughtful. We need more stuff that's more user-friendly, don't you think, Ayana? I agree, and um, that's a good point. I know I've really covered in on, you know, the government and consumers, and that's one of the bigger issues with this whole conversation is that a lot of the times we tend to try to put stuff on the individual level, but it's really these producers, right? If they are going to continue this stuff, they need to make it out of better materials, and, yeah, they need to make it clearly labeled and informed, like this is what part is recyclable, this is what is not, here's a nearby facility, here's how you can find a nearby facility, so... You know, that's one of the things that I see, um, you know, been looking into uh, producer responsibility. So, you know, thinking about how that waste is, how that waste is also handled. How can, you know, producers pay their fair share of that? Um, and again, back to that piece about how can they better inform uh, consumers as well. So I definitely agree. There's definitely this piece about the producers. And for this town hall that's tonight, do people go to ilenviro.org to register? Yes, they can. Um, yes, it is ilenviro.org, and we have um, an issues page where we have waste reduction, and right underneath that it has um, the waste, the water and waste town hall that will happen tonight. 
There will also be a recording, so if folks can't make it, if you go to YouTube and you look at uh, look up Illinois Environmental Council, we'll also have a recording of it. You can also find uh, Samir's Energy Town Hall from last week on there as well. Excellent. Uh, guys, we need to take a real quick uh, commercial break. I'd like to continue this discussion right after a quick break. We're talking to two of the people who work with the Illinois Environmental Council. We're going to continue this talk right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Ayana Simba and Samira Hanessian are both with the Illinois Environmental Council. There is going to be a program, a virtual program tonight that you can sign up for. You go to org, and you can register for this uh, free presentation. And also on the website, you can uh, look up recordings of previous programs it's a great way uh, in your own time and in your own space to educate yourself on these particular issues. Um, Samira, I know that one of the things that you were working on was the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. Tra- tell us about that. Absolutely. Thanks, Joan, um, for having us back. Um, so the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, or CJA, um, is a nation-leading um, climate and energy bill um, focused here in the state of Illinois. Um, and it sets us up um, for uh, carbon emission reduction by 2045 um, in the state. It also guides us on a path to a just and equitable um, energy transition away from fossil fuels and to clean and renewable energy sources. Um, this uh, now law passed about a year ago um, and couldn't have happened without many years um, of hard work from a coalition uh, called the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition, made up of over 100 um, organizations. Um, and uh, now the work, you know, has has kicked off um, over the last year or so, um, holding state agencies accountable to implement this law. Uh, Samira, I have to ask you, I mean, I know that you've had all these different positions inside and outside of government, but you always work on sustainability and environmental issues. What is it about this area that draws you? Oh, thank you so much for that question. Um, for me, I, I, I get really excited about um, environment and sustainability issues uh, with the intersection of environment and public health. Um, for me, I strongly at my core believe in um, everyone's right to uh, live a, a healthy life. Um, so, you know, working every day on issues that can ensure cleaner water, air, um, you know, just uh, the basic necessities, really, but ensuring that everyone has access also to, you know, uh, the same things through uh, equitable modes of transportation. Um really uh, passionate about ensuring that you know we, we have that um, sustainable baseline for everyone. 
And Ayana, what brings you to this kind of a passion? So, very, very short, twisting story. You know, it's a little bit weird, but when I was growing up, me and my grandmother used to bond over documentaries about wildlife. And, you know, she was always saying we're earthlings. And so, you know, fast forward to college. I was like, okay, I tried out like the environmental science. I'm not good at science. I realized my passion <laughs> was in policy. And so I ended up uh, just kind of focusing on environmental policy and heard about IEC. And so it was just something I always kind of grew up with, like as far as like an, an ideal or, um, I don't know, it's always been something that's been really important to my family. And once I realized I could do something through policy, that's what sort of drew me to the field. Well, I guess we all owe a debt of gratitude to your grandmother uh, for getting you started on this. Um, For both of you, Ayana, let's start with you. In the next five years, if you could accomplish anything, whether it is a change in behavior, whether it is getting a law on the books, what would be what would be that thing that you would like to see happen? I think um, in the next five years, I would like to see us, I see in a place where uh, we're able to build up environmental champions among the city council. I would like to see all 50 members of city council be environmental champions so that we don't always have to rely on those handful of alders. Um, you know, that's what mm-hmm. I would like. I want to see that cultural and political shift where this isn't something that just a handful of progressive alders focus on. And Samira, what would that be for you if you had that power? Yeah, I agree with Ayana. Um, and in my, my current role with IUC, I, I mean, you know, implementing um, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act is really number one. Um, and, it, it, you know, this is one of those large, almost 1,000-page bills um, or laws, excuse me, that um, – you know, it's going to take some time and it's going to take uh, years to really feel the positive impacts um, of the law. Um, so, you know, looking five years out, I truly hope that we are in a place where we are um, feeling and actually seeing and experiencing the benefits um, of the vision that we have for a just transition. I've been asking everybody who I uh, invite on this show to talk about these topics to offer one one little thing that people can do, one change they can make in their daily lives. A year ago, I had somebody on from the Water Reclamation, Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, and she was like, put a bucket in your shower. And I was like, excuse me? And she said, no, you know, everybody runs the water so that it gets warm. Put a bucket in your shower to collect some of that water that would otherwise just go down the drain. And I thought it was weird, but I tried it. And, you know, that bucket of water is handy. You need to wash something by hand. You have a bucket of water sitting right there. And I talked to a few other people uh, in my social circle, and they were like, well, we've had buckets for years. What do you mean you never had a bucket before in your shower? Like, how can you be so late to the bucket game? Um, so I'd like to ask each of you one little change that maybe sometimes you ask your you, your family members to make or your friends, you know, by the way, did you know if you did this, it would help? Uh, Samira, let's start with you. What, what is your recommendation for how I can be a better um, steward of this planet? It's such a great question. And um, it's one of those questions where where do we begin? Because um, <laughs> there are so many things. But, um, 
you know, we are entering a holiday season um, and aligning your personal spending with your personal values is really important. Um, you know, whether that means shopping local or supporting businesses um, that have missions that you strongly believe in, um, that's a big one. And it does make an impact because um, it ensures that, you know, these businesses stay around and that we have options. Um, on a very personal note, though, I've been committed to transitioning my uh, personal bathroom at home to zero waste products as much as possible. Um, so I've been trying to swap my shower items to uh, bar soaps, and that's been a bit of a, uh, a transition for the last couple of years. So like for um, there are also I've noticed recently there are some products where you buy the bottle once and then you can buy refills after that. Is that the sort of the thing you're talking about, being more responsible that way? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I've actually been looking at um, bars. So using like conditioner and shampoo bars, um, which are completely bottleless. So once you go through the product, that's it. You're left with literally nothing. Um Folks can certainly use refillable items. I've personally had some trouble with finding refillable items without going to um, one of the bulk or um, one of the stores that offer, uh, you know, refill right there on spot. Um, There's a store near me uh, up north uh, of Chicago called Eco and the Flamingo. They're really great. Um, But, uh, you know, Sometimes the refills come in these like, plastic bladders, and those are not recyclable. So ah. sometimes, you know, even making these switches aren't always as eco-friendly as you think they are. That's a really that's a really great idea to try to do zero waste. Um, Ayana, what advice do you have for me? I think sort of along the lines of uh, you know reducing waste, but I'm not as good practic- practical. The more better with like a mental. Um, so for, you know, a mental tip, I always think about um, trying to look at things about, do I really need this? So I always emphasize water bottles because I have a lot of family members that use water bottles and they have been persuaded a lot by the water bottle industry that your tap water is dirty and that it's unsafe. And there are communities where that is true. We do know that there are many homes that have lead service lines. But you can also use a water filter or you can think about bringing a water bottle to work um, that's just one example. I also, for me personally, when I walk into the store, I just always think about, okay, all these different items are here, and at some point, all these items are going to end up in the landfill. So, like, what can I do to try to reduce that waste? And so, it's not a great practical advice, but I just really would like for people to start to think about how how many of these things do we really need? How many of these things, like, mm-hmm. packaging do we really need? Um so that'd be my advice. So not necessarily practical, but just a mental note for people to take. Um, well, thank you. Thank you both. One of the things that I've started doing is um, if I buy a new item of clothing, I have to go through my stuff and I have to give at least three items to Goodwill um, because I'm, I'm trying to work myself toward minimalism and for somebody who, who like me, who has basic hoarder tendencies, this has been it has been a real struggle. But little things make a difference, um, and especially if we all do them, then they really add up. Uh, Ayana and Samira, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Again, I want people to know that the Illinois Environmental Council 
is doing a program on water and waste tonight. Ayana's going to be there. Uh, go to ilenviro.org to register for the event. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Joan. Joan. Wonderful being here. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to come back with more politics after that. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I want to go back to some of the stuff we talked about at the very beginning of the broadcast today about uh, the COVID briefing that was put on by... um, the White House representative, uh, Ja, Dr. Fauci. And um, it was interesting, not because of the information, which was, of course, good. The information, of course, being that you need to get out and get a flu shot, because in case you haven't noticed, we're in a really bad flu season. Uh, this isn't just RSV, which is that respiratory virus that's sending kids to the hospital and babies as well. Uh, This is a bad flu season. We got a hint that we were going to have a bad flu season by what we saw happening in Australia. Because flu travels around the world and it generally it hits Australia before us. And they had a bad flu season. But there was more going on today. Um, It was probably the very last time we will have a COVID briefing like this that contains Dr. Anthony Fauci after decades leading the federal government's infectious disease division. He has said that uh, this December he is stepping down. Um, I think he announced this quite a while ago, but I think it is a good thing overall because, of course, we have a Republican Congress coming in in January And in addition to claiming that they're going to launch investigations of Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden's laptop, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's uh, work to get COVID vaccines out. One of the other things that the uh, far right has said that they want to investigate is Dr. Anthony Fauci. By God, you know, this man, he did a bunch of stuff and he lied to people and blah, blah, blah. He got the jump on them by saying that he had planned this retirement for some time. He'd been very public about it. And I'm glad that of all the nonsense that Kevin McCarthy might not be able to stop in the next House session, attacking this dedicated public servant is something that we are all going to be spared. Anyway, at this White House briefing today, one of the reporters asked Dr. Fauci about his thoughts on his career. Listen to this. The answer is, if there are... This is your last appearance at the podium. You became a household name in large part because of your appearances here at the early stages of COVID. Um, What do you want Americans to remember about your service in government? Well, I I think what, what I've accomplished in my 54 years at the NIH and my 38 years uh, as the director of NIAID, although COVID is really, really very important, um, it is a fragment of the total 40 years that I've been doing it. So I'll let other people judge the value or not of my accomplishments. But what I would like people to remember about what I've done is that 
every day for all of those years, I've given it everything that I have, and I've never left anything on the field. So if they want to remember me, whether they judge rightly or wrongly what I've done, I gave it all I got for many decades. Isn't that great? Um, You know, when he first came to prominence with all of the COVID stuff, people were wanting to know who he was. And some of you may be old enough to remember when HIV was first discovered, when AIDS first hit, partly because it affected gay people, um, our government was very reluctant to even acknowledge what was going on, to even acknowledge what was happening. Um, President Reagan um, ignored it for really as long as he could. And an AIDS activist was very rude and in Fauci's face. Larry Kramer, AIDS activist Larry Kramer, really very publicly excoriated Fauci for not doing enough, for not paying attention, for letting people die. And you know what Anthony Fauci did? Anthony Fauci met with him and heard him out. And after giving it some thought, Anthony Fauci decided Larry Kramer had a point that he and the federal government were not responding the way they needed to and and were not prioritizing this the way they needed to. And he upped the federal response. He upped the research. He started making it more of a priority to deal with this new illness than he had before. That is who Anthony Fauci is. You know, he's somebody who will listen to that criticism. How many of us if we were in a high government position like that and were being viciously attacked by activists, how many of us would have the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to talk to these people. Maybe they have a point. Maybe there is something in here. Maybe I need to pay more attention. Maybe we need more government resources for this. Let me sit down and talk to these people. You know, Larry Kramer and Anthony Fauci became quite good friends, quite good friends that talked regularly for years. Anthony Fauci is going to be hard to replace. Um, What was some of the other news this morning that I couldn't get to? Uh, You know, I don't do... Generally, I don't do crime. I don't talk about crime because I feel that other kinds of organizations are better outfitted to cover crime and its aftermath. Only when a crime affects a larger issue and sort of enters into political discourse. For a long time, people kept saying, well, why aren't you covering Jussie Smollett? Um, Until it became a whole issue of how the state's attorney's office was working and the political ramifications. I didn't cover it because I felt that there were other places that had better resources to cover this kind of thing, which is also why 
I didn't cover the most recent shooting at a gay and trans nightclub. But Ben Collins, you might remember him. He's a senior producer. He's a senior reporter for NBC News. Um, I shared with you some sound from Ben Collins on MSNBC a few weeks ago where he was letting people know that what was happening with Twitter might be a problem for the midterm elections. As it turned out, um, Elon Musk doing his voodoo at Twitter um, was probably late in the game enough not to have huge implications for the midterm elections. But Ben Collins is somebody who is very thoughtful about reporting. Ben Collins was on Morning Joe on MSNBC. And he talked about this shooting in Colorado Springs. Guy walked in with a rifle before he was able to be subdued. Five people were killed. And um, it's not the kind of story that we normally spend time on, but Ben Collins framed it in the larger issue of where we are as a country, what our politicians are doing, and how our reporters are covering things today and will be covering things as we ramp up to 2024. He has taken this shooting and framed it as a larger political issue in a way that I thought, well, I found it very interesting and moving. Uh, I want to share with you what Ben Collins had to say about the Colorado Springs shooting when he was on MSNBC on Morning Joe. Listen to this. I do want to say, though, um, am I doing something wrong here? Here are some headlines that I wrote the last six months. Fueled by Internet's far-right machine, anti-LGBTQ threats shut down trans rights and drag events. Remember, uh, there was a drag event happening in Colorado. Anti-trans stalkers at Kiwi Farms, which is an anti-trans website that stalks people, are chasing one victim around the world. Their list of targets is growing. That was a couple months ago. Doctors under threat from far-right activists for providing trans care. Boston Children's Hospital faces bomb threat after right-wing harassment campaign. There were three of those bomb threats. FBI charges Massachusetts women with Boston Children's Hospital bomb threats, so they found one of the people. At least 20 Republican politicians have claimed that schools are making accommodations for students who identify as cats. That was before um, the midterms. Here are, some, here are three more from my colleagues in the last uh, three weeks. As electioneers, some conservative groups have ramped up anti-trans campaign ads. Far-right figures appear to be testing Twitter's boundaries for anti-LGBTQ speech. GOP uh, senator targets TikTok influencer with anti-transgender taunt. And I'm just wondering, what could I have done different? Seriously, as reporters, what can we do different? Because there are five dead people in a strip mall, because that was the only place they felt safe as gay or trans people in this town in Colorado Springs. And I am trying to thread this needle here. I'm trying to say that this is happening. This targeted stuff has real life impacts. They say in the internet has real life impacts. And I'm gonna fail, by the way. I'm gonna, you know, freak out because it's happening. Because I wake I wake up and I see that there are five dead bodies. But I think we have to have a come to Jesus moment here. Uh, as reporters. Are we more afraid of being on Breitbart for saying that trans people deserve to be alive? 
or are we more afraid of the dead people? Because I'm more afraid of the dead people. I don't want five, I don't want to wake up on a Sunday and see that all of these headlines came to fruition. Interesting thoughts, huh? Reporters have it a lot tougher than back when I was doing this. People are a lot more vocal. Social media is used to attack people. Reporters, in some instances, have become very careful, very cautious, and unable to um, even report facts that they think are important because of what they might face, particularly people who work at a national level. We are going to take a break. We're going to take some calls when we come back after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are talking about the news of the day, and uh, even though it's been a very short week, the news of the week, let's go to the phone lines. Bobby is calling from Indiana. Hello, Bobby. Joni, whether you want to or not, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. (laughs) Well, I want to. I absolutely want to. I'm really looking forward. You know, sometimes big gatherings like this I find really daunting and they make me a little anxious. But I am, I don't know, maybe it's because with COVID and everything we've been through so much, I I feel no anxiety and only uh, anticipation for this Thanksgiving holiday. And I'm hosting, which is just so unlike me. Oh, that's good. Well, I had my uh, my booster number five and my flu shot last Thursday, so we'll see how she goes. Huh. And, um, uh, well, I got something in the mail today, and doggone it, timing has always been my problem. But I got a uh, little letter and a uh, for a donation from uh, Mr. Warnock down south. Huh. And um, problem is, I only had about fifty bucks total left in my bank account. So, uh, but I uh, I wrote him a tiny check. It's going to the post office tomorrow, and. Um, all I can say is if anybody can do that, or better yet, if they got a computer and can send it down some something down, you know, that way. Um, I got that's a feeling. A, that's a really good idea. Gonna... And, and Bobby, I think Indivisible Chicago, I get their, I get their emails every day. I think Indivisible Chicago is going to be doing some phone banks on December 1st and December 5th. I just found it here. Indivisible Chicago, they're going to be phone banking for uh, Georgia as well. Now, sometimes uh, when people phone bank, they all go to the same location, which I know is difficult sometimes. Sometimes, though, I know that you can phone bank remotely. I don't have the, I don't have the details on, on this, how this is going to work, but you know, if you're down to your last $50, there are less expensive ways that you can support. And I think it's, I think it's admirable that, um, that you did send them some money. I also, that's a race that I'm also 
going to be supporting in in some kind of way going forward? Um, well, I say that um, people like you and me that are that are into recycling, I think we all should do a little something to recycle. Reverend Warnock back. <laughs> That's a great idea. I like that. I like that we're going to recycle him. He was there. Um, he did a lot of good. And we will we will upcycle by sending him back to the Senate. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Well, you have a good day and a good holiday. Thank you, Bobby. You too. You know, Chuck Schumer was talking uh, a while back about the difference it makes, whether the Democrats have 50 or 51 votes that they can count on. Uh, well, assuming they can count on them all in the Senate. And yes, if the Senate turns out to be 50 50. Democrats can still get things done, because if there's a tie, if it goes down party lines, Kamala Harris breaks the tie and that essentially she becomes the 51st vote. But there are a lot of bureaucratic things that have to happen, different um, steps that somebody like Chuck Schumer has to take in the Senate to actually get a bill to a vote. You know, they call for cloture, which is uh, which means that they're winding the discussion up and it's time to vote on the bill. It's um, it's kind of a bit um, bureaucratic. But what Chuck Schumer said in a nutshell is it is a lot easier. The difference between 51 Democrats and 50 Democrats in the Senate cannot be understated. How it will make their life easier. No more hoops to jump through to get votes called. Um, it limits the numbers, number of ways Republicans can try to slow things down and drag things out. So this is really important. Plus, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think the difference between having someone intelligent and thoughtful elected to the Senate as opposed to somebody whose only claim to fame is that he was a football player. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, the vote between those two candidates should be absolutely positively clear. And one other thing I want to touch on real quickly before we um, before we go to a break, I was talking about how because Anthony Fauci is retiring this December, he's most likely not going to face a lot of the nuttiness that Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Lauren Boberts of the world said that they were going to bring. They were going to investigate him for I don't know what they were going to investigate him for. Uh, he was asked about that in today's covid White House briefing. He was asked about these investigations, and one thing that really surprised me is his attitude was, even if after he's gone, if the Republicans bring an investigation, um, he said he would cooperate. Listen to this. The answer is, if there are oversight hearings, I absolutely will cooperate fully and testify before the Congress have asked. You may not know, but I've testified before the Congress a few hundred times, okay, over the last 40 years or so. So I have no trouble testifying. We can defend and explain and stand by everything that we've said. So I have nothing to Just a quick follow-up on that. Hey, if it was me walking out that door, 
I'm not sure I would be that gracious. Of course, who knows if they call him to testify, who knows now that he's, if he came to testify, no longer being in a position where he had to be responsible, who knows what he might say? Could be great. What do you think? I think it could be great. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk with one of the candidates for mayor right after this. Tune into the Tom Hartman radio program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am pleased to be rejoined by our good friend, Cam Buckner. You know him as a state representative, but he is also one of the people who is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Cam, welcome back to the show. Joan, thank you for having me. Great to be on with you. It has has been an interesting uh, field of candidates since we last talked. Chewy Garcia definitely running uh, for... A mayor and um, Ray Lopez dropping out. Ray Lopez said very publicly that the reason that he got into the race is because he doesn't think Mayor Lori Lightfoot was a good mayor. He doesn't want to see her reelected. And he said now that the, the field is so crowded that he feels that we're heading toward what will likely be on February 28th. Nobody getting enough votes and a runoff election. And he said, you know, I think that she's a stronger candidate to win a runoff election than uh, she is to win outright on February 28th. So I'm going to drop out of the race to make it less likely that she gets reelected. What did you think about that? Well, listen, I know Alderman Lopez did his own calculation on what made sense, uh, you know, in the space that he was in. For his own, um, you know, his personal kind of progress moving forward and, and what he wanted to do. Um, listen, I remind folks that this, this field does seem crowded. Um, and as Chicagoans, we're pretty new to this runoff process, right? It was mm-hmm. first runoff in 2015. And so we're still learning how that works, right? Um, but, you know, listen, that the crowd, the, the field in 2019 was more crowded than this. Um, and, you know, I, I do see that there may be some folks that decide not to continue with their with their journey to be mayor. Um, but what this really is, known is, is this is a result of the vacuum of leadership in the city. Uh, the reason there are so many people clamoring to see what they can provide uh, and how they can insert themselves into the conversation to, to provide leadership in Chicago is because we have lacked it for the last four years. Uh, and so um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I'm excited that we, you know, we've, we've filed our petitions and, and we're ready to move forward. How many petitions, how many signatures did you have? Yeah, we're just shy of about 25,000, 26,000. Um, and we were out, you know, a lot of this was done by volunteers. Uh, as you know, many people pay folks to do to do this. And we had some, you know, a paid program going as well. But, um, you know, the, the bulk of what we got was from Chicagoans, right? You know, folks who were from uh, condo associations and people who were concerned with uh, public safety and public transit and people who really resonated with our message. I, I remind folks, John, that we are the only campaign in this race uh, who has provided a public safety plan, a comprehensive climate change and, and environmental plan, a, a transportation plan for the city, an education plan for the city as well. And so people really resonated with the work we were doing uh, and they were happy to sign our petition. Wonderful. Um, when, you know, I know that it just, uh, we just got the date uh, where we could start filing these signatures 
Um, how soon do you think the petition, uh, the signature challenges are going to start coming out? They'll come out quickly. Um, you know, we have until the 28th uh, is when the petitions will, will be doing that. I think five days after that, people have to begin to challenge folks. The mayor has not filed yet, and she has indicated that she will be filing on the last day uh, for whatever strategic reason she she decides to do that. Um, and so, we'll, you know, we, we we know the process and the way it goes in Chicago. We will see a number of challenges, uh, but I will assume that um, some point leading up to the the week or the week before uh, the Christmas holiday that the field will be settled. There was speculation, and I'm not sure it's founded speculation that. Uh, I think not only the mayor said she was going to file late, but I think Chewy Garcia's campaign said they were going to be filing toward the end of the deadline. Do people do that to try to protect themselves from challenges that uh, so that it's less likely that you have the time to challenge their signatures? Yeah, there are, there are three reasons that people decide to file late. One is for ballot position. If you want to be the last person on the ballot, uh, just like those of us who filed on the first day. Um, we're looking to have a, a, uh, a chance to be the first person on the ballot. There's there's some some analysis that show that you know people look at the first and the last names, uh, more <laughs> than in the middle, right? And so um, you know there, there's 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 one reason. The other reason is that um, a person can possibly just not have the signatures, not be ready to go on day one. Which um, you know, as folks begin to continue to collect petition signatures this week, uh, that may be the case for folks who have not filed yet. And the last part is that. Um, to ward off the uh, to protect themselves from challenges, right? Not giving people enough time to uh, to look at what you, you've got and see discrepancies, and, and then therefore make a case to challenge you. Eric Zorn was writing this morning about the field of candidates, and uh, he pointed out that Paul Vallis, um, you know, unless something changes, Paul Vallis is the only white person uh, on the ballot who or is hoping to be on the ballot to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Um, but Eric also went on to point out that, frankly, that's, you know, it's it's not like the old days when um, when that would have been a big plus to getting white voters. Do you think there's any any meaning to uh, the fact that that somebody on the ballot is white and everyone else is a person of color? You know, I, I don't know how much stock I put into that. Um, you know, I will say Chicago is. Uh, quickly becoming a city that's around 70% or maybe even over 70% minority. Um, and we've also seen these trends around the country. Uh, we see that the mayors in the largest cities in the country, um, uh, New York, Los Angeles, Houston, Philadelphia, are all minorities. Um, and so I think it's a, a little bit of a word demographic shift that has gone in, in America. Uh, but listen, I think people in Chicago don't care as much about that. They, they care about folks who understand their community, understand their neighborhoods. Uh, you know, we, we know Rich Daly enjoyed a lot of love from the black community for a long time. Uh, and and Ramon actually did as well. Uh, but we don't see a lot of that, that same um, love kind of spread over with our current mayor, who happens to be an African-American woman, right? And so, uh, you know, I think there's there's something there that, that you can use for conjecture and, and to talk about, um, you know, the public intrigue of the whole situation. But I'm not sure how much it matters. This last midterm and a lot of down ballot races, you know, we saw spending. It seems like every time there's an election for down ballot races, we see spending the likes of which would have been unimaginable 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, look at the the two races for uh, the Supreme Court. I mean, a ton of money was poured into that. 
So does that mean going forward that the candidates who are going to do the best are the ones who can raise the most money? Well, so you know, this, this is a precarious situation we find ourselves in, in in the political space, right? Um, money matters, right? But unfortunately, um, you know, money has taken up way too much of the air in the room. Uh, I think um, what we saw in this last this midterm, midterm elections in, in November uh, was that, um, you know, people will spend. But at the end of the day, uh, citizens are the folks who are going to make the decisions, right? They're going to figure out who, who they believe in, right? And so while mm-hmm. there's a lot of money spent in that race, you know, there were hundreds of millions of dollars spent by the Republican Party to, you know, paint this picture of the governor and the state legislature. Uh, and, you know, J.B. won conventionally. Uh, the state the General Assembly is still uh, very blue with a supermajority and actually in the House of Representatives where a lot of my colleagues were attacked for public safety. Um, we gained seats. We have 78 Democrats in the House starting in the 103rd General Assembly. And so uh, I think, you know, if we look at what happened in, in this last race, where we look, we look at this mayor's race, money is going to be important. Money is not going to rule the day. Um, you know, folks are going to want to appear that people have a plan for their future. Hmm. Um, how much of your campaigning is devoted to, to fundraising? Because I know sometimes people don't realize that, you know, it's, it's it's sometimes the calls from the candidate himself that inspire somebody to donate. Yeah, a lot of it. We spend a lot of time. Um, <laughs> Too much. Money, but, but, you know, uh, what we also have done is that we've been very intentional about making sure that we, that we are out meeting people where they are, at their doorsteps, in their church basements, at their Little League games with their kids. Um, and Chicagoans want to be able to touch you and feel you, right? There is nothing like shoe leather. There is nothing like retail politics. Um, so people can actually talk to you and have a sense of who you are and what your plan for them is, right? And so that's been extremely, um, it, it's been an extremely big part of the campaign that we've run and we'll continue to do that. When you go out to like a Little League game and um, introduce yourself to people, what what is the what is the typical response? Yeah, so when, when I, you know, it's funny, I, tell, I, I, t- I said at the beginning of this campaign, Joe, that um, I knew I was going to have to introduce myself to folks in Chicago who did not know me, um, but that once they met me, they would realize they've known me their entire life. Um, I'm the guy <laughs> that grew up down the street from them. I'm, I'm the kid that they taught in, in school. I'm the, the guy that played with their, their children in, in, uh, in Little League or, or basketball, right? And, um, you know, I've been able to connect with folks by being, you know, a person that's from here. I'm born and raised in Chicago. I'm raising my family on the South side. I'm from the South side. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a cop. I went to Chicago public schools. Um, you know, we, we talk about issues with, with the CTA. I've been a CTA rider since I was five years old. We talk about issues with um, the park district. I grew up in the park district and in the libraries in Chicago. I, I am uh, born and bred here, right? And so when, when people get that sense of me and they understand also what I've been able to accomplish in Springfield as a legislator, um, they're very receptive. Are your parents still alive, Kim? My mother is. We lost my father uh, in 2021. Uh, my, my mother is still alive. She uh, she spent 33 years as a CPS teacher. Um, she's been retired for about five or six years now. And she uh, she accompanied me last yesterday to the Board of Elections to file my petition for me to have her there. My, my mother moved here uh, in 1955 from a small town called Drew, Mississippi. And she moved to Chicago because in August of 55, Emmett Till was killed in the, in the town that was right next door to her in Mississippi. And my grandparents, um, that was the final straw for them. They didn't feel that their girls were safe 
uh, they had opportunities, so they moved to Chicago. And uh, my mother's story and the way that she got here really is part of what drives me and why I'm here in the first place. That's an amazing story. Has your mom given you any advice? She has. She she reminds me to to keep my head right to to um, take it all in stride uh, and to remember that I'm doing this for people. I always remember your why and I always remember who um, you decided to do this work for. And I carry that with me every single day. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, Cam, we need to take a real quick break. I'm speaking to uh, State Representative Cam Buckner. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We're going to continue our talk right after this. Take Jonas Bezito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. I'm joined by mayoral candidate Cam Buckner. He is currently a state representative, and uh, he has been... Cam, when did you throw your hat in the ring? How long have you been doing this now? I have been in this race for seven months, Joan. I threw my my hat in the ring actually on my birthday, on May 12th of 2022. Uh, and we have been hitting the pavement, hit, hit the ground running. We've been all around the city in each of the 77 communities and each of the 50 wards um, talking to folks. And this has been one heck of a journey. It is the most intense job interview I've ever been on in my life. <laughs> the longest, too, I would imagine. Right. Absolutely. So as you have been making the rounds and talking to people, has has your idea of what you want to do as mayor changed or been influenced by what you've been hearing? I'll tell you what. Um, the, the thing that has influenced me the most, you know, from what I've been hearing from people around Chicago, uh, you know, it's very easy to look at what's happening here and feel a sense of desperation and despair. Uh, but people in the city really, really care. They love Chicago. And they are willing to do whatever they need to do to make this the greatest city on earth, which I really think it is when we're doing things the right way. Um, and so I've gotten ideas from people from all across this, this city. Um, you know, I've had really intense conversations about policy, uh, but also what the city needs to look like. Right? We, we know Chicago is the city that works, but um, even when the city that works worked, it didn't work for everybody. And mm-hmm. what I've gotten from people is that they really want things to make sense. And uh, I'm more inspired than ever uh, by the conversations I, I have, with, whether it's, you know, a single mother in, in, in Bucktown or a, a family in South Shore. What people are telling me is that they're ready for change. They deserve change and they want this to be the work for them. And, and not, you know, not to go back to some nostalgic version of what Chicago used to be, but really giving Chicago the city the chance to be the city that she's always deserved to be. Uh, and people have that in their bones, it's in their eyes when they talk to you, uh, and that really is exciting. When people ask you, uh, you know, to bring about change when you're in the mayor's chair, are they talking about economic help for their neighborhoods? Are they talking about making their neighborhoods safer? What's the priority? I know it's all important, but what's the priority? I think the biggest thing is, is safety, right? And and often when we talk about safety, we talk about it from a law enforcement standpoint. But but when I talk to Chicagoans, they're not really talking about police per se when they talk about safety. They're talking about uh, the lack of affordable housing stock. They're talking about the lack of resources for um, our CPS students, specifically those who are uh, in the special education system and those who are, who are diverse learners. 
Um, they talk about the fact that real development hasn't happened in their communities uh, in a way that gives back to their communities. Communities, right? Development, development, development has happened to their communities, but not with their communities, right? And so um, that that is the public safety scope that that we hear, um, and we have taken a public safety approach to every single thing that we do in this campaign. Once again, when we talked about our, our clean uh, environment, uh, climate change um, platform. That's, to me, that also is public safety. When we talk about our education platform, that's public safety. When we talk about what we're going to do for our veterans, the 60,000 veterans who live in this city, uh, that is that is public safety to me. And so um, I hear safety being the number one, two, and three thing that I hear from everybody across the city. Uh, but it looks different than I think we often talk about it uh, in, in the broader sense. When it comes to education, um, there are all different kinds of ideas of how to improve the city of Chicago, whether it is, you know, increasing the number of charter schools or somehow finding out a, a method of funding schools other than property taxes that would end up being more equitable. Uh, um, what would you like to see different? What would you like to see change for the Chicago public school system? Well, first, first off, there needs to be a better relationship between CPS and the General Assembly. Uh, I've worked my butt off in Springfield to make sure that we bring more resources home that we make sure that CPS is actually funding schools in an equitable way and that the state government is giving money to CPS in a way to do that. Um, but I think there's been just way too much of a disconnect. And this administration has no connectivity with Springfield. This administration has failed to um, have a robust agenda for our young people in Springfield. And I think that needs to change immediately. Um, what also needs to change immediately is, is the, um, the, the, the fact that we have really put our young people uh, on a course for failure. We have not invested in them. Uh, we, our schools are, are lacking social workers. We're lacking librarians. We're lacking uh, those, those, um, those folks in those roles who, who help our children with their entire uh, educational experience. Um, what I also have said is that the, the cadence of uh, the, threat of, the threat of strike every year uh, has really worn down the parents and the teachers in the Chicago public school system. Um, the next contract, the teacher's contract, is coming up June 30th of 2024. And what I have committed to is that I will negotiate that contract myself. I will not do it by proxy. I will not do it from behind a podium or through Twitter or by a press release like we've seen in the past. We've got to create some stability uh, in the way that the union and the and the, the school system works. It's the right thing for all of us, but specifically for teachers and parents and students. Uh, it's the best way to move the city forward. There has been one idea put forward. Lori Lightfoot put it forward, and then she pulled it back. It was put forward again recently as a way to house the unhoused, and that's the real estate real estate transfer tax. Uh, Lori um, suggested it, got pushed back, abandoned the idea. It was floated again as a way to create thousands of housing units in the city of Chicago. And if I'm remembering this correctly, in a, there were... Um, there were only 25 people that showed up at that special city council meeting where it was supposed to be voted on. It wasn't a quorum and everybody had to leave. What do you think about this idea of a real estate transfer tax? Is it, so, is it a, a, something that should be explored or not? Absolutely. And I'll say this, right? There are a few things, John. Um, the real estate transfer tax that currently exists, first off, is being misused. Um, all of the money from the RETT goes to, to CTA and to other places, but it, none of it is they're marked specifically for housing. To me, that's, that's problematic. Um, there is a real estate transfer tax at the state level, and at least 50% of those dollars go 
to prevent homelessness. Um, so we, I think we do need to expand what we're doing there. But even if we can't get there today, what we can do today is make sure that we're using what we have the right way. We're not doing that. Um, the, the mayor committed to the, the Bring Chicago Home um, co- Coalition's platform on on the real estate transfer tax and, and using it to house the unhoused. Uh, and then she backed off on it. And then she came to Springfield and asked for an increase in that tax without uh, specifying where the money was going to go to. And I led the charge to say, no, we're not doing this. We're not going to increase taxes on Chicagoans. Uh, until unless without you having a real plan on on how we deal with our our housing situation, right? And so we we killed her bill uh, that was attempting to to do that, and now um, it's been back on the on, on the table probably because it's an election year, obviously. Um, and she orchestrated this uh, work stoppage in city council last week, which I think uh, was ridiculous. Uh, we got to find a real way to deal with our issues for for way too long. We've looked at homelessness and, and uh, the unhoused as an issue that largely exist on the West Coast. But when we look at what's happening in California, Los Angeles and San Francisco specifically, that is coming to our doorstep, and it's here already. Uh, the mm-hmm. large number of unhoused folks in Chicago is ballooning, and they got worse post-pandemic, right? And so we got to find a real way to deal with this. The mayor can't continue to run away from uh, what she has promised to do for the people of Chicago. Yeah. Kim, um, what's been the best part of your campaign so far? The most fun? People. Chicago is Chicago is crazy, John. People ask ask me all the time, you know, what what makes Chicago so great? Um, and some people talk about, you know, the, the architecture and the food uh, and the lake and the institutions we have here. And I remind folks that there are other places with great architecture, great food, great institutions, and we share that same lake with Gary, Indiana, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. What makes Chicago awesome is the people, um, and I'm getting a chance to know them and meet them in, in a way that I haven't seen them before. Right when you run from there, you get a different uh, vantage point, and I'm so excited about this city. I'm so excited um, that we are moving in the right direction. That we can find the right leadership. I'm raising my son and my family here for a reason. It's because I love Chicago. Chicago's been good to me and my family, and I want to keep it going. But I'm so excited about the future, and we will do what we've always done in, in, in this city, and that's find a way to get it right. Cam, thanks so much for talking to my audience. I really appreciate it, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, John. I really appreciate you. Have a great one. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Uh, That's going to do it for me. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will, of course, see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Until then, stay safe. Have a great evening. Good night.